Well, congratulations. Uh, if you're here, you've made it to the third week of my one-week series on the book of Revelation. So, I know. It's, pretty, it's like how I squeezed a five-year seminary program into six years. So, that's, I got a gift for that. Before we jump into the last section, uh, I just want to remind us briefly of what we've covered so far. I know it's been a while, you know, two other parts over, over four weeks here. Um, so what we saw at the very beginning was that the early church was facing growing persecution from the Roman Empire. Uh, and Jesus, in fact, addresses seven specific churches, encouraging them to remain faithful, to hold on to the salvation that they already have, because things were going to get harder, they're going to get worse before they got better. And to help them, to provide them with the courage that they were going to need for the days and years ahead, God gives them this book, this apocalypse, this revelation. He allowed them to see the unfolding of his plan from his point of view. And what they see, starting in chapters 4 and 5, is first the definitive victory of God through the cross of Jesus. Uh, John, in fact, sees a lamb looking as though it had been slain, now sharing the throne of God. Uh, the message there is pretty clear. Jesus has triumphed. Uh, he is worthy to, be, to bring God's kingdom and God's rule to earth and to bring this age of history to its conclusion. Uh, but right away, we discover that this plan isn't what we would expect, much, in fact, as the cross is not the victory that we would expect. Uh, we discover, specifically, that at the cross, God did not put an immediate end to all sin and evil. In fact, we learn, quite explicitly, that those things are going to be allowed to persist until the second coming of Jesus. Now, if you find this confusing, you're not alone. Many in John's audience were confused by it as well. But don't worry. God also reveals to John the reason for this. He shows John that this is a time of grace, of judgment delayed, so that all people might have the chance to hear the gospel and to respond in repentance and faith. In other words, God is not being slow to put an end to evil. Rather, he is being patient. He is providing time for everyone to have every possible opportunity to turn to Jesus for salvation. Uh, this, in fact, is a major theme of the book. It's woven all the way through. Uh, this theme that all people will ultimately have the opportunity and the responsibility to make that choice. Everyone is going to have to choose to follow the lamb or the beast. Everyone, in the end, will have to identify themselves with the creator God or with the powers of rebellion that stand against God. It's a chance we all have to make. Uh, the result, though, is that this period of grace or patience, however you want to look at it, can feel like and look like chaos and even defeat to some believers who are on the ground. But it isn't. What John sees clearly from the divine perspective is that this is how God's plan to redeem a people from every nation is actually meant to unfold. And two weeks ago, we ended part two by emphasizing the fact that the plan is working. In fact, in this one area, maybe, we have a leg up on John's original audience because 2,000 years later, we can look back and we can see quite clearly the truth of that claim. 
uh, quite clearly. Uh, We can look back and see that the gospel has, in fact, gone to the whole world and that billions of people have responded to that with faith and obedience. Just as John foresaw, the church, through her faithful witness to Jesus, even in the teeth of persecution, has now grown to include people from every tongue and every tribe and every nation. Praise God. His plan has borne fruit beyond all possible expectations. That gets us to today. And I think at this point, there are two outstanding questions, two big questions that remain. First, okay, we've got this time of grace, this time of patience, but how and when will God finally put an end to evil? And second, what then? What comes next? Uh, What should we expect after God finally puts an end to evil? Uh, My goal today is to wrap things up by looking at how John's remaining visions answer these two questions. So let's jump in. Uh, Let's start at chapter 12, where we left off two weeks ago. Now, if you remember, uh, two weeks ago, we walked through the first two of three sets of seven. There's a seven seals, seven trumpets, and then the seven bowls. But in between the trumpets and bowls, we have a little interlude here, where John is shown a series of shorter visions that he calls signs. Uh, The first of these is in chapter 12, Uh, and actually, this first one takes us back even further in the past, and it gives us a God's eye view of the incarnation. It describes the birth of Jesus as the hinge point in the history of conflict between humanity and Satan. Uh, In fact, it's a clear allusion to the judgment that God gives the serpent in Genesis chapter 3, that there'll be enmity between the descendants of the woman and the serpent, Uh, It's a clear callback to that. Uh, That's chapter 12. In chapter 13, we get a second short vision where we discover that part of Satan's response, the dragon's response to this, is to call forth a beast from the sea. Uh, If you look at chapter 13, verse 2, the second half, it says this. The dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority. Later, there's a second beast from the land who we are told exercises authority on on behalf of the first beast and makes the inhabitants of the earth worship the first beast. Now, all right, let's pause for a second. I know we're already neck deep in symbols, dragons and beasts and whatnot, uh, but I think we can actually unpack this pretty clearly. Uh, Two quick points. First, the first beast, the one that comes out of the sea, is transparently the Roman Empire. Now, why do I say that? Well, if you look through there, it's got all the attributes of Rome. Uh, It's Rome who seemed unconquerable in war, 14 verse 4. Rome who currently is persecuting the saints of God, 14 verse 7. And it's Rome, also 14 verse 7, uh, who appears to rule over all the peoples of the world. So once we know the first beast is Rome... The second beast, by logical extension, is some local manifestation of Roman power or rule. Uh, So that might be a Roman governor. Uh, Remember, the seven churches John is writing to, they're in Asia Minor. They're not in Italy. So maybe it's the the governor of their province. It might be the Roman legions, who are, after all, a, a very tangible symbol of Roman power and rule. Or, I think this one might be the most likely, Uh, It could be the cult of the emperor. This is a new cult that was literally forcing people 
to worship Rome in the person of the Caesars. But either way, whichever one of those it might be, it might be something else. Here's the point, which I think is pretty clear. Both beasts represent the current human manifestation of rebellion against God. Okay, They're the human manifestation of rebellion against God, and in John's day, that was undoubtedly, absolutely, the Roman Empire. But the second point that is, that's, I think, very important is that behind this beast and all the other beasts, granting them power and authority, is Satan, the dragon. In other words, John sees that behind every human manifestation of rebellion against God there is a spiritual power of rebellion, Satan. Uh, we found out this spring that we are unfortunate to have the invasive weed thorn bush thing called buckthorn in our yard. Familiar with buckthorn at all? I got to learn about this. It's a delightful weed. Um, the, the trouble with buckthorn is not only that it's invasive, but it's incredibly resilient. Uh, and the problem is that it's tempting to look at what you can see, which is the thorns and things that grow above the ground. And it looks like you could just simply dig those out, cut them off, you know, maybe, be, maybe mow them over repeatedly, whatever your tactic of choice is, and you take care of it, right? You, you dug them up, you pulled them out, they're going to be gone. I did this one day. I spent about an hour digging up all these little shoots that had sprouted up throughout our yard. And I was done, and I thought, man, took care of it, problem solved. Well, if you know anything about it, you already know where this story is going. A few days later, I look out in my yard, and now in a different section, a whole bunch of new shoots have come up. Well, where did those come from? Well, I didn't even bother digging those up, because by that point, what I had learned is that what you can see above the surface isn't the big problem. It's not even the real problem. The problem is the extensive root system beneath the surface. And unless you kill the roots underground that you can't see, unless you dig them out and completely get rid of them, you can dig up the one thing over here and it'll just shoot up another one over here and then another one over here. Uh, unless you take care of it at its source, it's going to keep coming back. Another one and another one and another one. What John sees in this vision, and it, it ties in very closely with a vision that Daniel has, uh, of a succession of, of human empires, is that so long as the, the unseen spiritual powers of rebellion exist, there is always going to be a new beast. There will always be a new manifestation of human evil. And if what John discovers is that if God is going to end evil once and for all, it's going to mean putting an end to both the human manifestation the things above the surface that we can see, and the spiritual powers that stand behind them. And so when we get to the seven bowls after this interlude in chapter 16, that's exactly what we see. Uh, the first six bowls, like the other two sets of seven, it's, it's uh, a bunch of, of plagues. It's an echo of the plagues of Exodus. But then between the sixth and seventh bowl in chapter 16, uh, this is what we see. We read in 16, verse 13. Then I saw three impure spirits that looked like frogs. They came out of the mouth of the dragon, the mouth of the beast, uh, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. They are demonic spirits that perform signs, and they go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them for battle on the great day of the, God, of the Lord God Almighty. In other words, here's what we have. 
One last time, the spiritual forces of rebellion go out to all the world and they gather together all the human beings that have chosen to identify with them, that have rejected the lamb and that stand with the dragon. And they gather this mighty host, everyone from the face of the earth, all the spiritual powers and all the human powers, and they gather together at a place called Armageddon. Now, Armageddon is significant uh, from Old Testament history. It's a place where a lot of uh, Israel fought a lot of battles, important battles with their neighbors. But despite what you may have heard, I'm here to tell you this morning that this battle, this last one, is powerfully anticlimactic. I actually love it. I think it's brilliant. Uh, if you read through it, we get this building tension, okay? We get this building tension. These spirits, these, these, these uh, sowers of evil, they go forth into the whole world to all the kings of the world. They gather together all the kings and all the people and all the armies that would stand together against God. They bring them all together in one place and they gather in all of their might and all of their power before the Lord, ready to make war on God. And God looks down at this mighty host and God simply says, right there, verse 17, it is done. And that's it. All the powers of evil are no more. The enemies of God are gone. And then we have the seventh bowl in John's familiar formulation, peals of thunder, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. I want to lean into this for a second because I think it's important theologically, but also from an encouragement point of view. We are not dualists friends. There is no power of evil that's balanced carefully and almost equally against the power of God. In the Christian worldview, there is only the one creator God, author and sustainer of all things. Even those who stand in rebellion against him. And so at the end, at the very end, there's no battle, there's no struggle, there's no fight. The outcome is not in doubt. There's not a small chance. There's not a one in a million chance. There's no chance. In the end, the God of creation who spoke the universe into existence in Genesis 1 simply speaks evil out of existence in Revelation 16. That's it. And it's all done. If you want to know the bottom line from the seven bowls, it's this. In the end... God wins, and it's not even close. Now, if you're John's audience and you're living under Roman oppression, you might appreciate a little more detail. And so just like what happens earlier in the book, uh, an angel appears to John and essentially asks him, hey, come with me and we'll zoom in on these events a little more closely. Uh, and so that's what happens. Uh, he, he sees two shorter visions, okay, uh, and the first vision is going to zoom in on the destruction of human evil. And the second vision will zoom in on the destruction of spiritual evil. The first vision in chapter 17 through the first half of chapter 19, uh, Rome is this time described as a woman riding on a beast, and it is identified with Babylon. Now, if it's getting confusing, the number of symbols he uses for Rome uh, the point here, and I think it's very helpful actually, in identifying it with Babylon, is it's a reminder to us that there is always a beast, right? Rome isn't the first human group to stand against God. Before Rome, there was the Macedonian Empire, the Seleucids. Before them, 
There was the Persians before the Persians. There were the Babylonians before the Babylonians. There were the Assyrians and on and on and on. There's always been a manifestation of human evil standing in rebellion against God. Uh, Calling it Babylon just connects it to all the rest. And in this vision, John's given a detailed look at the fall of Rome and the vindication of God's people. Then he sees a second vision, or sorry, this first vision, uh, chapter 19, verse 20, accordingly, it concludes, as we would expect, with the destruction of human evil, when the beast and the false prophet are captured and thrown into the lake of burning sulfur. We then get the second vision that zooms in this time on the destruction uh, of the spiritual powers of rebellion. Uh, And it zooms in on this, this time, and this vision ends in chapter 20, verse 9, uh, with verse 10, the destruction of those spiritual forces. It says, the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur. Now, I know I moved through that quickly. There's a lot there. You'll have to dig in for yourselves. Uh, My opinion is that those two visions uh, are recounting the same events as one another and as the battle we saw during the seven bowls. Uh, I think they're the same battle, just focusing in on different things. Uh, I have a lot of reasons for that, but the main one is this. When I read between the sixth and seventh bowl that God looks at the gathered forces of human and spiritual evil and says, you're done, I think they're done. Uh, so I don't know what you want to do with the visions that come after that, but I don't think there's a lot of existence for evil after God says you're done. I kind of think that's it. So I see those as all three covering the same period of time. Now, there are a lot of people, some of them much smarter than me, who are going to disagree with me on the chronology, but the good news is that however you map this out on a timeline, the chronology is not the point. The outcome is, and the outcome is clear. One day, God will put an end to all sin and all evil. One day, God will end not just the beast, but the dragon, Satan, who stood behind every manifestation of human evil and rebellion. One day, God will end evil at its source. In the end, God wins, and it's not even close. All right, so that answers our first question. Now, I think, is kind of a fun one. After God puts an end, a permanent end, to the powers of evil and rebellion, what comes next? What's the new age like, the age to come? Well, here, I want to start by pointing out the obvious, although, you know, it's maybe not so obvious. First, John's vision is not, in fact, about the end of the world. Despite what you may have heard, despite the meaning we now attach to the word apocalypse, John's vision ends not with the end of the world, or even the end of our material world, but with a new or renewed creation. This present age will end, as we just saw. Evil will end. But creation, heaven and earth, will be made new. Look at chapter 21, verse 1, which, by the way, as it's described, is almost a direct fulfillment of Isaiah 65. John says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. Now, those of you that love the ocean, don't panic. He's not talking about the ocean. There presumably will still be oceans. He's talking about the sea as the metaphorical source of the beast. Remember? It's the beast Rome comes up out of the sea. 
Uh, no, there's no longer any source, there's no longer any root system for evil. In the new heaven and new earth, the root system of evil is gone. Uh, and there's a lot of debate over exactly what John's describing here, what that's going to look like. I mean, what does it mean for heaven and earth to pass away? Is this new creation from scratch? Well, we don't know. You'll have to answer that for yourselves. But again, the main point, as clear as we could want it to be, is that this is a fresh, creative act of our good God. As God himself says in verse 5, he says, Behold, look, I am making all things new. To me, the way to understand this is very simple. Now that God has finished getting rid of and ending the powers of evil, God now turns his attention to erasing all of the damage that sin and evil have done. It will all be scrubbed away. It will be rolled back. It will be no more. The victory of God will be total and complete. Uh, when I read this now, I think of, because of, you know, HGTV, I think of furniture restoration. I don't know if you've seen any of this on TV or, like, I'm sure there's a billion videos on YouTube, but it starts out with a piece of furniture that I look at uh, with my limited skills in this department, and I go, yeah, that's garbage. I mean, it's nice, it had a nice run, uh, Hopefully, it had a good life, but it's over, right? I mean, there's, what are you going to do with this? You can burn it for heat. I think that's about all you've got left, right? Uh, but, but, a master craftsman looks at that and sees something totally different. They see a good work. They see something beautiful. Yes, has it been marred? Has it been damaged? Has it been ruined by use, by irresponsible owners? Sure. But they see something that's worth their time and their attention and their skill to restore. And so that's what they do. They apply themselves and they turn it back into something like this. They turn it back into something like that. I love this visual because in a way, this is the ultimate vindication of the original creator, isn't it? It's a way of saying to the person who made it, you have made something so good, so beautiful, so value, valuable that it is worth the time and effort and attention it takes to restore it. That's what we see here. God looks at his creation, his good world from Genesis 1, and he says, yes, if you look around and you see damage, you see destruction, you see that, that sin and evil have marred the good thing I have made, you are right, that's all there. But beneath it is my good world, something so good and so beautiful that it is worth my time and my effort to restore it. It's the ultimate vindication of Genesis 1 of God's good world. God has dealt with evil, evil, and now he will scrub away all of the damage that is done. What John sees, and I stole this from N.T. Wright because I love it. What John sees right here is what, he, what N.T. Wright calls God's great yes to creation and to humanity and his great no to sin and evil. It's the ultimate vindication of the world he made. His victory over evil is now total and complete. There's nothing left to even remind us. That's the first thing we learn about the age to come. 
The second thing we learn is that the relationship between heaven and earth is now different. Previously, through, uh, since Genesis 1, you could best describe heaven as the primary dwelling place of God. Heaven is God's throne room, as we saw in Revelation 5. It is the place from which God rules creation. Now, this doesn't mean he's absent from creation. Nothing like that. God is, in some sense, present everywhere within creation. But he's not present everywhere in the same exact way. Uh, for example, if, if this is confusing, just think of it this way. Right now, I think most of us, I hope most of us would say that God is present with us, not least through his Holy Spirit. But I think we would also admit that if all of a sudden we were teleported to the throne room of God in heaven, I think we would expect that to be qualitatively a different experience, right? Sure. God's presence, both places, just qualitatively different. In the biblical narrative, God created earth to be the place where he could dwell among humanity, where humanity and God could dwell together. Uh, we get little glimpses of that purpose all the way through. At first, it's the Garden of Eden that's created to be this place of overlap where Adam and Eve can walk together with God. Of course, they, they mess that up, as we all know. But after that, there's Mount Sinai, and then there's the tabernacle, and then there's the temple and the promised land, and then there's the Holy Spirit for the church. Those are all gifts provided by God as a means by which his people can dwell in his presence. But what God now apocalypses, what he reveals to John, is that even the temple, even the promised land, great gifts though those were, they were simply signposts to an even greater, more gracious fulfillment. And here in Revelation 21, John sees it. Look at chapter 21, verse 2. He says, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Here we have a new heaven and a new earth, but a new relationship between the two. John uses the language of marriage to describe it. Heaven and earth, the dwelling places of God and humanity, are being united in marriage. They're being made one. From now on, those borders are being erased. The dwelling place of God is among us, and we will dwell with him. The Greek verb there is to tabernacle, which means to pitch your tent. God is literally pitching his tent in our neighborhood. He himself will be with us and be our God. Another way of thinking about this I think is helpful is that all creation in the age to come, all creation becomes the Garden of Eden. The whole cosmos becomes the temple, or actually becomes the Holy of Holies. And again, I think it's important to see that this is the matching bookend to Genesis 1. This is the future that Genesis 1 promised. Here's the fulfillment of the original project. But now, God will dwell together, not just with Adam and Eve and their family, 
but with all people from all nations. They will all dwell together with God. Chapter 21, verse 24. We will see his face and his name will be written on our foreheads. Chapter 22, verse 4. In other words, this is not the end. This is a new and glorious beginning after a long and painful detour. So, what do we take away from this rich book filled with visions and signs and symbols? I've already offered a few insights over the past two weeks. I won't repeat them today. Uh, and as I thought about it, I decided what I want to do today, the way I'd like to wrap this up, is to leave you with a question. And it's one that I've been asking myself repeatedly over the past four weeks. What does it look like for us, for me, for you, to live in a way that demonstrates faith in the message of this book? What does it look like for us to live as though we believe the message of this book were true? Rather than answer that for you, I kind of think you should have to do what I did. You should have to wrestle with that question. Think about what we've learned, that God is in control, that his plan is working, and that one day he will bring a full and final end to evil. If we believe that, how should that change us? How should that change our attitude? If we believe that the Lamb is even now on the throne and bringing God's rule to earth, how should that change our priorities? How should it impact the way that we treat others? You know, God thought that when he gave this book to the early church, that it would give courage to Roman believers who were facing torture and death. What should it do for us? I think it's a good question. I'd like you to just take a moment, maybe bow your heads, and just reflect on that just for a little bit. Just ask God, ask him, how should this change us? How should this message impact the way that we live?